Let's stand, if you would, please. We're going to have a responsive reading of the Beatitudes this morning as Pastor Bruce continues his sermon series upside down from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. The words will be on the screen. I'll read aloud the first half of the Beatitudes as well as the first two verses of the section and the last two verses. We'll respond by reading aloud the second half of the Beatitudes, which are on the screen behind me. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this responsive reading of it, and ask that you would continue to to change us with uh, our view of the Beatitudes and how they impact our lives, and that you would be with Pastor Bruce as he brings us this message and just help us to be uh, to walk away renewed uh, in by your Spirit and by your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as we continue in our series in the Beatitudes, a series we're simply calling Upside Down, I have some great, great news for everyone here this morning. How many need some great news? You need good news. That's only about a third. Something's wrong with the rest of you. Here's the great news that I have for you. The odds say you aren't going to die in an avalanche. Seriously, avalanches kill only about 30 people per year in the United States, which means you're looking really, really good for avoiding a demise of this nature. Now, still, I'd be negligent if I didn't let you know that you could still be caught in an avalanche. And so if it did actually happen to you, I wouldn't want you or your lack of preparation to be on my conscience. So in case you're ever caught in an avalanche, here's some important avalanche survival tips. And I only have one. One avalanche survival tip. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Spit first, dig second. Spit first, dig second. That's it. Pretty simple, right? Turns out one of the biggest mistakes people make is that once they're covered over with tons of snow, they dig blindly trying to get out. The dig part is a good idea. Blindly, not so much. It's too easy to dig in the wrong direction, burrowing deeper and deeper into the snow. Popular Science Magazine wrote about one such victim. And when the rescue teams found his body, they discovered that in his furious attempts to dig out, he'd actually dug some 30 feet deeper into the snow. The victim expended every ounce of strength he had only to get himself further from his intended goal. If only he had spit first. I know some of you are still wondering, 
why spit first? What's up with that? Why spit first and dig second? Well, if you're covered with snow, then there's almost no way to tell which direction is which, but gravity still applies. So push some snow away from your face and spit. And if the spit falls away from you, then you're facing down. And you need to turn around. If the spit falls left or right, you're sideways. But if the spit falls back in your face, hey, you're facing up. And up is good when you're in this situation. In fact, this may be the only time that you want to spit in your face. Here's the point. We live in a culture today where there is a lot of directional confusion. Where up seems like down, and down seems like up. People are trying to find satisfaction in life, but they're only digging themselves deeper and deeper into moral confusion and spiritual emptiness. As a result, people are suffering all over our world, our nation, even within our own city, perhaps even in our own church here, people are suffering from spiritual hunger in a junk food world. In fact, one of the greatest tragedies of our culture today is people have full stomachs but empty hearts. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal said, there is a God-shaped vacuum inside every human heart, but instead of filling our hearts with God, what we are seeing, and we have seen this through the course of history, is so many people have filled their hearts with the things that never satisfy them. And so no wonder so many people are disappointed in life, disappointed with their life, and dissatisfied. And we have full stomachs, but we have empty hearts. St. Augustine explained both the problem and the solution when he said, Oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Isaiah put it like this in Isaiah 55, 12, when he writes, Why? Why are you spending money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. The prophet Jeremiah said it like this in Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And perhaps you're here this morning, you feel a little bit the same way. Your soul is thirsty, and your heart is hungry. And if you're drinking at broken cisterns and eating bread which does not satisfy, listen, there is good news in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. There is good news in this fourth beatitude. In the words of C.S. Lewis, ring true and true, when he says, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And of course, that world is the kingdom of God. The spiritual world here. Jesus has something to say this morning to us. He has something to say to all of us here about hungry hearts and thirsty souls in this fourth beatitude. When Jesus, on that side of the mountain, says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
for they will be filled. And yet, nobody wants to be hungry in our world today. I certainly know my kids do not want to be hungry. It's an uncomfortable feeling to be hungry. It's, it's a gnawing emptiness that cries out to be filled. And it won't stay silent. Feed me now, it insists. But Jesus tells us that those who hunger and thirst are blessed. It sounds upside down. It sounds even preposterous. But as we have seen so far in these Beatitudes, nothing Jesus says about a blessed life seems to make any immediate sense. It's only when we get underneath and we begin to find out what is it that Jesus is telling us here. Poor in spirit in the first beatitude, mourning in the second beatitude, meekness in the third are not what we would normally consider the marks of a blessed life. Nevertheless, Jesus challenges us here to spit first when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, don't miss how this fourth beatitude is connected to the previous three beatitudes. The first three beatitudes are descriptions of spiritual emptiness. You have poverty in spirit, mourning over sin, meekness, are not characteristics of overflowing fullness. They are beautiful these first three Beatitudes. In fact, they are necessary, but they are not yet the fullness that we so desperately longed for. And, it, and so isn't it natural then that following these, these first three Beatitudes, Jesus would now say to us in this fourth one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, after pronouncing a blessing upon those who, who recognize their, their spiritual bankruptcy, and, and those who grieve over it, and don't try to defend themselves, Jesus now makes a transition from this emptiness in our lives to fullness by saying that hunger and thirst for righteousness is also blessed. So let's explore this for a few minutes here this morning. Let's explore the, the fullness of hunger in the fourth beatitude here. And the first thing I want you to see, number one, if you're taking notes here, you're welcome to do so, is to feel the powerful force for righteousness. And I actually, I want us to feel it because that's the whole essence of what Jesus is saying to us in this fourth beatitude. It's a feeling here with the words that he uses. Now, right off the bat, though, the words that Jesus uses, Jesus uses a metaphor that we have a hard time identifying with. And yet, Jesus wants to, us to identify with it. He wants us to feel the force of it, and yet, that puts us in a position because we have a hard time doing that. And that is the metaphor of hunger and thirst. Millions of people throughout the world go without enough food to eat and clean water to drink. And so they know what it means to hunger and thirst. However, percentage-wise, America is the most overfed and overnourished nation on the face of the earth. Our problem isn't finding something to eat. It's losing the fat that comes from eating too much. 
We think we're hungry when our stomachs growl. When we're hungry, we just do what? We open the refrigerator. Or we drive to Taco Bell. And we fill our stomachs. And so most of us here this morning, we don't really know what it means to hunger and thirst. But the people in Jesus' day, oh, let me tell you, they knew exactly what it meant to hunger and thirst. In the ancient world, in Jesus' day, there are many people lived on the very brink of starvation. And water was an even more precious commodity, which meant travel in that day had to be carefully planned around the availability of enough food and water just to stay alive. And so when Jesus says to us in this fourth beatitude, hunger and thirst, he does not mean the rumble you might feel in your stomach around dinner time. He means starvation. He means you're dying of thirst. And that's the force in which he wants us to feel with this beatitude. Hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst here depict an intense desire for what you can't live without. That is, that's the picture that Jesus is giving us. Food and drink are the, the two most basic human needs for survival. And so Jesus could hardly have used a more vivid phrase to illustrate an intense desire for what you can't live without. What Jesus says is even further intensified by the very fact that this hungering and thirsting that he says in this beatitude, it is continual. In other words, it's ongoing. It never stops. David, King David in the Old Testament, he used the same force, the same feeling of hunger and thirst when it came to his relationship with the Lord. Listen to what King David says. Listen to his words here in Psalm 42, 1-2. He says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Later on, he writes in Psalm 63:1, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. How many saw the movie Unbroken? Unbroken. Yes, all right, some of you did. If you saw the movie Unbroken, then, then you saw a glimpse, you saw a little bit of what it means to truly hunger and thirst. During World War II, Louis Zampernini's plane was shot down over the Pacific Ocean where he and two others were forced to survive on this tiny life raft. And after numerous days without food, they could only think about one thing. Food. Here's how Laura Hillenbrand describes their hunger pains on that tiny raft. As hunger bleated inside them, the men experienced a classic symptom of starvation, the inability to direct their thoughts away from food. They stared into the ocean, undulating with edible creatures. But without bait, they could not catch even a minnow. Occasionally, a bird passed, but always out of reach. The men studied their shoes and wondered if they could eat the leather. They decided they couldn't. Several days later, every conversation meandered back to food. Louis had often boasted to Phil about his mother's cooking, and at some point, Phil asked Louis to describe how she made a meal. 
Louis began describing a dish, and all three men found it satisfying. So Louis kept going, telling them about each dish in the greatest possible detail. Soon Louis' kitchen floated there with them. Sauces simmered, spices were pinched and scattered, butter melted on tongues. So began a thrice daily ritual on the raft, with pumpkin pie and spaghetti being the favorite subjects. The men came to know Louis' recipe so well that if Louis skipped a step or forgot an ingredient, Phil and sometimes Mac would quickly correct him and make him start over. When the imaginary meal was prepared, the men would devour every crumb, describing every mouthful. They conjured up the scene in such vivid detail that somehow their stomachs were fooled by it, if only briefly. Louis and his friends were literally starving to death. And as a result, they had one intense, all-consuming passion for what? Food. Nothing else mattered to them except food. And in the same matter, what Jesus is telling us here in this beatitude, He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. But what should we be hungering and thirsting for? Not food, not water, but righteousness. Now, let's be honest here. Most people think of righteousness as being a somewhat of a good thing, provided that it's taken in moderation. We may even admire the idea of living a righteous life or a right life, a, a good life. Being good and doing the right thing are actually somewhat admired in our culture still today, even by unbelievers. But at the same time, when we fail to live a righteous life, to do some good things, most people think, well, it's just not that big a deal. In our culture, righteousness, therefore, is viewed as nice to be admired, but it's not essential. It's an optional extra in someone's life. Sometimes that's even what Christians think. We do the right thing whenever we think people are watching us. And so like the Pharisees, we're more concerned about respectability than righteousness. We're more concerned about our reputation among people than our actual standing before a holy God. And so in this beatitude, listen to me, we are coming face to face with an attitude that contradicts how we normally think about righteousness. Righteousness, from Jesus' point of view in this beatitude, is not an optional extra. Just as our physical life depends upon food and water, so our spiritual life depends upon righteousness. That's the principle that Jesus is giving to us here. That's the force of this beatitude. Jesus, He's not suggesting some casual desire for righteousness, some take-it-or-leave-it option for righteousness, but rather, He's saying a starvation for righteousness. In other words, Jesus is calling us to get fanatical about righteousness. 
after all. We're pretty fanatical about eating, aren't we? I know I am. I don't want to go a day without eating. I'm very fanatical about making sure I get something to eat each day. Why? Because we know if we don't eat, we will eventually what? Die. You got it. And so hunger, my hunger, your hunger, tells us we need what? Food. Or we'll starve to death. And so Jesus is telling us here that just as food and water are essential for physical life, so righteousness is essential for spiritual life. Now, that brings us to a question. Why, though, do we need righteousness? Why is every person that's ever been born on the face of the earth in need of righteousness? Here's why. Without righteousness, we cannot be right with God. We cannot be in a right relationship with God. Therefore, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here's the problem, though. People like me, people like you, people are proud of their own righteousness. However, self-righteousness is never good enough. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, let me tell you, they lived remarkably self-controlled, upright, moral lives. You would have been proud of them. But all that good behavior by the Pharisees was not enough. It's never enough. In fact, later on in this very same sermon on the side of that hill, the sermon, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, listen to his words. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and the reason he said that, because of all the people groups in the world at that time, the Pharisees had the highest level of righteousness, and yet it wasn't enough, and yet Jesus is telling us, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. But perhaps you're here this morning and you think you're better than a Pharisee. After all, in our own hearts, we tend to think that anyways. There are times where all of us tend to think that. And so if you think you're better than a Pharisee, here's the deal. Your righteousness is still not good enough. The prophet Isaiah summed up our condition in Isaiah 64, 6 when he writes, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. As Pastor Ray Ortland Jr. said, your righteousness is in danger of hell. Repent of it. That's where we stand with our righteousness before God. Therefore, we need, listen, we need God's righteousness, not self-righteousness. And thankfully, oh, thankfully, hallelujah, praise the Lord, there's famine relief for those starving for righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
through Jesus Christ. Get this, God provides for us righteousness that is not the result of our own efforts, of our own goodness. Remember, all of our righteousness is worthless. It wouldn't feed a hungry sparrow. Which takes us all the way back to the first beatitude. Poverty of spirit. Poor in spirit. There's nothing within us that gains us entry into the kingdom of heaven. But in the gospel, God has provided a vast feast of righteousness from which we are now invited to eat. As Paul writes in Romans 1.17, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is now revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Now, there's actually two aspects of God's righteousness that we need, that we cannot live without. Let me briefly break them down for you here. The first is what we could call positional righteousness. Theologians sometimes call this legal righteousness. Here's the point I want you to really get, and that's the blank to fill in. What this is, is being right with God in relationship to Him. That is the first and foremost kind of righteousness we need that we cannot live without because our greatest problem as human beings is, to, is the need to be right with God. But how can sinners get right with a holy God? Well, theoretically, the only way is by perfect obedience to God's law. But that theory collapses in practice because no one can perfectly obey God's law. And this is where the Pharisees were hung up. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, they thought that they could get right, that they could be right with God through their own self-righteousness. To them, righteousness was nothing more than conformity to rules and regulations and trying to obey the law that God gave through Moses. But it was never good enough because they could never obey it perfectly. And this is why we desperately need a righteousness that is not our own. It's against the backdrop of this hopeless situation that the gospel then shines forth in all its brilliance. God now has intervened by sending His Son into the world on a rescue mission in which He took the place of sinners and acted on our behalf. I love how Peter describes it in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. In other words, reconcile us to God. You see, the heart of the gospel, you could frame it this way, is, a, is what's called this great exchange program. Where we can exchange our self-righteousness for Christ's perfect righteousness at the cross. Paul writes about this great exchange in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where he says, For our sake He, that is God, made Him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross for you and in the power of His resurrection, here's what happens. God, at that moment, attributes your sin to Jesus Christ, and then God attributes Christ's righteousness to you. And the result is we are justified. 
In other words, God now declares you righteous in His sight. And that is your legal standing or your positional standing before God Almighty. Before Him, He doesn't see me as a sinner anymore. He sees me as a son or a daughter who is now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is a beautiful thing. Because that means God will never leave me, forsake me, never abandon me, and will never condemn me, as Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. We are safe and secure in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This great exchange program, though, means more than just being forgiven of our sins, though, folks. It means being brought into favor with God, which, by the way, that is our definition of blessed. A blessed life is what? You have the favor or approval of God. And so a blessed life is one who's been brought into favor or approval of God. You've been brought into a right relationship with God, not by your righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ through your faith in Jesus Christ. This is the picture that Jesus is painting for us in this beatitude. He wants us to see that a person who has embraced the gospel is a person who has seen his empty spiritual stomach and part spiritual throat and now realizes that unless someone intervenes to give him what he needs, he will not survive. But through the gift of Christ's perfect righteousness, our relationship with God is now restored. It's a beautiful, beautiful gift that is given to us. That is the first dimension of righteousness that we are in great need of. Do you have that kind of standing before God Almighty? Not because of what you bring to the table, but because what Jesus has already brought for you at the cross and at the resurrection. But there's a second dimension to this righteousness as well, and that is what we could call personal righteousness. Sometimes we might even call it practical righteousness. Theologians call this moral righteousness. The bottom line is it just means that we're now, once we are being right before God, that's our standing, we are now living right before God, which pleases Him. Positional righteousness is what we are given at the moment of salvation through faith in Christ. While personal righteousness is what we grow in as Christ followers. This is what the Bible calls and uses the word sanctification, which simply means the ongoing process by which we grow in righteousness through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Right living, therefore, is what we hunger for, is what we thirst for, is what Jesus says in Matthew 6.33 in the same sermon, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness. Thus, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, let me tell you, they long to live righteously. In fact, we even begin to pray 
like Paul prayed for the believers at the church of Corinth in Colossians 1.10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. That's now living out our salvation. It's living out our righteousness, but not ours. It's Christ that's now ours. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. And let's ask a question that only you can answer. The person sitting next to you cannot answer this. I cannot answer this question for you. Only you and you alone can answer this question. And that question is this. Do you, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Here's the reason that question is so important. Hunger and thirst for righteousness is a sign of spiritual life and health. What we hunger for, what we thirst for, is an indication of the kind of heart we have. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you are giving evidence of spiritual life and health. That you have been given new life in Christ Jesus through your faith in Him. Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes. He says, I do not know of a better test than anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite sure you're a Christian. But if it is not, you had better examine your foundations again. In other words, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, here's what it possibly may mean in your life. Either you're spiritually dead because... Dead people have no appetites, right? And if that's the case, if you're spiritually dead, then your greatest need is to be made alive in Jesus Christ. To be born again. You need new life. You need to be made alive so that you now have this appetite for righteousness. Or, if you're not hungering for Righteousness, it may mean you're spiritually sick. Because what happens to sick people? They lose their appetite. In fact, one of the greatest signs of spiritual sickness is a lack of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Or there's a third possibility. If you're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it may mean that you have simply stuffed yourself full of junk food of some kind. And you now need a change in your diet. Remember, the Pharisees weren't hungry for God's righteousness because they were already stuffed with their own self-righteousness. Why do we tell our kids not to eat so much junk food? Well, obviously the food itself is not good for them, but more than that, it fills them in such a way that they are not hungry for the things that their bodies really need. 
Self-indulgence, even in seemingly harmless ways, can slowly lead us away from the one thing that will bring satisfaction in our lives, and that is a hunger for righteousness. What the Scottish preacher Thomas Guthrie wrote many years ago still holds true for us today. Listen to his words. He says, if you find yourself loving any pleasure better than your prayers, any book better than the Bible, any house better than the house of God, any table better than the Lord's table, any person better than Christ, any indulgence better than the hope of heaven, take alarm. But if you can honestly pray like Robert Murray McShaney, Lord, Make me as holy as it is possible for a redeemed sinner to be. Then you have reason to believe that you are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And if not, then by all means, search your heart to see if you are spiritually alive in Christ Jesus. However, if you do hunger and thirst for righteousness, then Jesus says you are blessed. Now, what exactly are we blessed with? That brings us to our second point. Jesus says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will find the promised fullness of righteousness. Jesus states it this way in the Beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, Jesus makes it clear that we must hunger and thirst for righteousness if we are to be fed and filled. In other words, there is no promise here for the browser. You know what a browser is, don't you? Sometimes we go to Dillard's, Kohl's, and we browse, and we never buy anything. We never walk out of the store with anything. A more modern term for browsing is what? We're at home on our computer, we're sitting in front of the TV with our laptop, and we're browsing on the internet. And Jesus says, there's no promise here for the browser, the one who is just looking, or the person who is content with their own self-righteousness. But notice the promise of satisfaction to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says to those who do that, they will be filled with righteousness. Now think about this word filled for a moment. Filled is a super, super word. It means to be absolutely satisfied. Isn't that a great paradox, though? What Jesus is telling us? You're satisfied, but never satisfied. And I'm like, what, Jesus? What's going on here? What are you saying? Jesus is telling us that those who are filled continue to be hungry. Yet how can one be full and still be hungry? How is that possible? Well, perhaps an illustration will help us to understand the paradox in this beatitude. When my family, when we go out to eat at our two of our favorite barbecue joints, one is Arthur Bryant's. How many like Arthur Bryant? Nobody likes Arthur Bryant. Thank you, yes. Or Joe's Kansas City Barbecue. How many like Joe's? All right, good, there's a few of you. That's, if we go to barbecue, that's where we go. 
And when we go to Joe's Kansas City Barbecue and we order Z-Man sandwiches and a slab of ribs, let me tell you, it's like heaven came down to earth right there at that table. It's the most glorious thing in all the world. And I love every bite of that brisket sandwich, every bite of those baby back ribs, and by the end of the meal, I'm sloshed back in my chair, I'm releasing my belt a little bit, and I am stuffed. I am stuffed, and I am satisfied, I am full, but at the same time, I know it's a paradox, I can't wait to eat leftovers for lunch the next day. When I go get that to-go box, and I put those baby back ribs in that box, I'm like, oh, this is going to taste so good, but I'm so full. In fact, there's times I can't even wait till lunch the next day. And so Jack and I get home, and two hours later, we're pulling out the to-go boxes of ribs, and we're feasting again. And so it is with God's righteousness. We are filled, and yet the righteousness is so rich and so sweet that we want more and more and more. In other words, the more we are filled with God's righteousness, the more we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. Now, in one sense, we are filled already as soon as we trust Christ for our salvation. After all, Jesus tells us Himself in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so we find satisfaction in Jesus Christ, and yet there is this blessed dissatisfaction that wants even more and will be satisfied only when we see Jesus return. When Jesus comes again. The Apostle John tells us in Revelation 7, 16 and 17, never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will lead them to springs of living water. Oh, what a day that will be. Jesus, is, Jesus promises that one day your hunger and my thirst will be fully satisfied completely forever and ever. As the British preacher Richard Brooks says, we shall have everything we desire and desire everything we have. What a phenomenal beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Filled. Now I end with one more question. And that question is this. What are you hungry and thirsty for? Jesus' plea to us this morning is to make Righteousness, the hunger and thirst of your life. And you will be satisfied now and forever. Church, listen. It is never, never, never too late to change your diet. Jesus has provided us with the menu and with the appetite in the gospel. We are to hunger and thirst for His righteousness. But if, listen to me, if, if you come to Christ's table having already stuffed yourself with your own self-righteousness, 
you will starve yourself and never know the satisfaction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you come to the table with an appetite for Christ's righteousness, it's yours to eat. It is yours, and there's plenty to go around. Jesus never runs out of righteousness for us to eat at. The table never is bare. The wine jugs are never dry. There's more than enough. So bring your appetite and feast at the table of Christ's righteousness. And Jesus promises that you will be satisfied now and forever. Let's pray. And as we do, I want to pray a prayer by A.W. Tozier that comes out of his book, The Pursuit of God. Oh God, I have tasted your goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want you. I want to know you. I long to be filled with longings. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory, I pray, so that I may know you indeed. Bring, begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, and come away. And then give me grace to rise and follow from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen. As the praise team sings, let me ask you, do you have a right relationship with God? If not, then come to the table and feast. Confess your sins before God and ask Him to forgive you and ask Him to save you and to cover you in Christ's righteousness. Those of you that are already believers in Christ, are you living right before God, though, in a way that pleases Him? Is there unconfessed sin in your heart that needs to be confessed and forgiven? Ask God to search your heart. Ask, what's hindering me? What's, what's, what's causing me not to hunger and thirst, perhaps? Will you do business with God? This is our time to come. Before we're dismissed here this morning, the Bible likens the church to a family. And so oftentimes, appropriately so, we use the phrase church family uh, to describe our relationships with one another. We're family. We're, we're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And when a family member such as a son or a daughter leaves a family, it causes sadness of heart. And In fact, depending on the reason why, why a son or a daughter may have left a family, it can even bring grieving and mourning within that family. And the same is true when a family member leaves our church family, especially when that family has been part of our church family for, for many, many years and have become very dear to our hearts. And so it's with sadness of heart to tell you that Bill and Sandra Howe have decided to leave our church family for personal reasons. Now, while it's not a 
common practice for me to make a public announcement every time a member leaves our church or transfers to another church family. I felt it was best to let you know due to Bill's position of serving on our leadership council, serving on our finance team, as well as serving as our church treasurer, for which he served faithfully for many, many years, and for which we are grateful and thankful for his service as well as Sandra's. For the sake of protecting the unity of our church, though, I would ask you to direct any questions that you may have to myself and not to one another. And if you're here as a guest of ours this morning, or if you're new to our church family within the last month, three months, six months, even the last year or two, I, I fully understand and realize that the impact is much different for you than it is for those who have been part of our church family for many years. And so as we leave here this morning, please, please know that it's okay to be saddened by this loss. And it's okay even to cry. I've had my cry. My wife has had her cry. And we still mourn. And most of all, it's okay to pray for both Bill and Sandra Howe, as well as our own church family here, as we continue in our mission of leading people to follow Jesus Christ. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer even now. Lord, we come to you and we do give thanks that first of all, through your grace and mercy of Jesus Christ at the cross and through his resurrection, and by our faith, that we can come into your eternal family, that we can be your sons and daughters. And Lord, we are thankful for that hope and the comfort that that brings to our own hearts, that one day we will all be united together, all peoples, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we, we do lift up Bill and Sandra to you as you lead them in a different direction. And we praise you and we thank you for have them having been part of our church family for so many years and just their faithfulness in serving you. And we give glory to you for that. And we ask that you guide and lead them to a new place to call home, a new local church. And Lord, we ask for your strength and your grace and your mercy to fall upon our church family as we continue to focus on your mission, the mission that you have so clearly given to us of helping people to find a relationship with you, helping them to follow after you and to do so passionately. And so, Lord, give us the strength that we need, the clarity that we need as a church family. And, Lord, protect our body of believers, protect our unity for the sake of of your glory. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.